Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. All right, today is the day. It's the second hour of Mornings with Carmen. Welcome back. Where in the Word are you today? I am in the 16th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke because it's the 16th day of Advent this year, which also happens to correspond with the 16th day of December. So I hope you have been reading along. Um, we we spent uh, time at the outset of the first hour in the first half, half of the chapter. In the second half of the 16th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke, we get the um, very odd and unique uh, story that Jesus tells about a rich man dressed in purple and fine linen, living in luxury every day, and at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. Now, this is not the Lazarus that you know um, as the brother of Mary and Martha, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Lazarus is actually a fairly common name. Uh, So there's a beggar named Lazarus. He's covered with sores. He is longing to eat what just falls from the rich man's table. Even the dogs come and lick his sores. And um, Jesus says, the time came when the beggar died and angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, which, by the way, if uh, if ever you run across a person who says, you know, hell's not real, um, there is no place of torment, you have to say, well, what do you do with the times and places where Jesus makes direct reference to that reality? To the, re- to the reality of, uh, of a time and a place where there will, uh, it will be outer darkness and the weeping of gnashing of teeth, where there will be, um, uh, like he says here, uh, you know, a time of torment. Um, so anyway, so then there's this conversation um, between Abraham and the rich man, and uh, the rich man very much wants uh, pity. And he wants pity to be then delivered through Lazarus, like send Lazarus just to bring me um, some water to cool my tongue. And Abraham says, first of all, he addresses him as son. I find that critically important in this conversation um, because there are those who who call upon the Lord, Lord, Lord. But, you know, the, the reality is they, they have not become followers of Jesus. And so, you know, they're they're not headed where Jesus made a way for us to go. So Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Well, Lazarus received bad things. So now he's comforted here. And yes, you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, there's a great chasm, and it has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. This is an opportunity to have a conversation with people that they, you don't get a chance after you die. The, the time to decide uh, that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is sent from heaven as the second uh, member of the Trinity, co-eternal, co-equal with the Father, um, condescended into human flesh, took on our sin, uh, took it to the cross, uh, died an atoning sacrifice in our place, was raised to newness of life in order that we might have a restored relationship with the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now is the time to accept and receive that and then to turn and follow him. There will be a time when it is too late to do that. And that is actually what this parable is all about. 
Now is the time. The end of this parable is a conversation um, about the reality that some people will never believe. And they won't even believe, if they don't believe the law and the prophets, if they don't believe the word of God as, as recorded in the scriptures, Jesus is saying, you know, they're not going to believe if, if somebody rises from the dead. Um, that's prescient. Obviously, Jesus already knows that that is true. Not everyone will be convinced even when he rises from the dead. All right, uh, I'm going to talk next with a guy who is convinced that Jesus is the Savior and the Lord. Um, I will describe Thomas Russo Jr. um, as a guy whose life has been radically transformed by God and who is now sharing that story with others as an encouragement. So if you are on, wow, if you are on the, um, the hamster wheel and you just feel like you are running and running and running, that you don't necessarily have any direction and um, you got a fear of like suffocating in the current context of of your uh, make it bigger and better life, this conversation is just for you. That's up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen. So Thomas Russo Jr. and I connected on LinkedIn, and then we exchanged books, and now he is here to talk with us, um, not just about his book, which is There Are No Politics in Heaven. You can find it at nopoliticsinheaven.com, but also to talk about the reality of a transformed life. So Thomas, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you for the opportunity. It's great to be with you today. So it's wonderful to have you here. here here's where I think I want to start. Tell us about Tom in early September 2015. What was his life like? So the Tom of 2015 in September was a very inauthentic uh, version of self. So I was living a life that was not really true to God or to who I was. And uh, it was a very confusing time of life. There was a lot of anxiety and depression. Um, Unfortunately, there were thoughts of suicide at that time of life. So it was just a very confused state of mind that I was in back then. And you talk, um, you talk in the book about your darkest hour. Um, I know that it's a lot to ask somebody to take us to their darkest hour, but will you take us there? Oh, sure. It's um, you know, it's hard, but it's it's uh, transformational and it's necessary. And you know, I I found through my journey, Carmen, that God was always more interested in my character than my comfort. And that time of life was very uncomfortable for me, but God had a plan. And, um, yeah, September 2015, I remember being in my office. Uh, I'm a town manager of a local New Jersey community, and I was there in my office, and I realized that my life at that point was a fraud. I was uh, back involved in New Jersey politics, uh, not by interest, but by ego, and I just found that that decision um, adversely impacted, you know, my marriage, my relationship with my daughters, my work. Um, just everything about me was falling apart because I was just not living an authentic life. And I remember being on my hands and knees begging to be saved. And I don't even know at the time if I knew what that meant. I just knew that everything seemed off to me. Everything seemed askew. And I just remember crying out, you know, I asked God, why am I this way? I 
I don't I don't want to live this life anymore. It was a lie, and I was tired of being in a fraud. And I really cried out to God to ask to change me, and that if He could show me how, that I would follow His path. Because I always used to think I was the smartest person in the room. And I realized at that moment I wasn't even asking the right questions. So when I turned it over to God at that moment and heard Jesus' voice say that, you know, Tom, it's time, I didn't know what that meant at the time really. But now looking back, I can say that it was really time for me to grow up and mature emotionally and spiritually, and God has been nothing but gracious to me all these years in showing me the way, and I'm really grateful for it. So I want you to tell us about the new Tom, the Tom that others have now described as like an actual living example of 2 Corinthians 5.17. But I think before we do that, I would like for you to simply make a personal appeal to every guy who's listening right now who's on that hamster wheel. You described the hamster wheel in chapter 6 of There Are No Politics in Heaven. Make a personal appeal to those guys right now. Well, this is what I would say to them, and, you know, I've been blessed that I've been able to speak at churches and men's groups since I published the book. And what I tell men specifically is, you know, my journey is not unique. Politics was my drug of choice. So whether it's um, an addiction, uh, pornography, alcohol, work, anything you do or anything that you put above God, right, is an addiction and it's something you need to address. Now, as men, we tend to isolate and withdraw, but we're really tribal, right? We're meant to be in packs. We're meant to support each other. So I tell them three things, accountability, consistency, and transparency. ACT, act like a Christian man. Be accountable to God, ourselves, and others. Be consistent at home and at work and anywhere, and be transparent. No secrets, no hidden websites, no hidden phone numbers, be an open book to your spouse and your kids. And if you can do those things, whether it's through scripture, men's group, therapy, you know, any combination thereof, you can change your life. And like I tell people, look, on the outside, I had everything. I had a successful marriage. I had a career. I had a trajectory in politics, um, affluence financially. I had all the trappings, right, of, of this, this world. But I was empty inside so much that I couldn't even look in the mirror. So if you're a man who is experiencing that type of life where you just feel like you're going through the motions of work and family, but you're kind of empty on the inside and you don't know where to turn, I'm here to tell you that faith transform your life. So if you can take a step back, hit the pause button on your life, and you can reach out to either me or other people that are in the faith space that understand what you're going through, your life really can be transformed, especially if you're dealing, especially this time of year, Carmen. Christmas season is a beautiful season, but there are people that are suffering from anxiety and depression, confusion, uh, maybe bad decision-making. This is an opportunity for us as Christians to reach out to our brothers and sisters in faith and let them know that they're not alone and that they're, if they follow the word and they follow the way that Jesus taught us, that they can transform, transform their life. Okay, I know there are a lot of women listening right now who are, are sobbing because they want their husband to want what you are, uh, what you are talking about. And so when we come back, we've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, Tom, I, wanna, I want you to, um, to talk to women. I want you to talk to Christian women who are living with the men who are on the hamster wheel, who you are describing, um, and help us know how to pray for and come alongside and walk with men who do not yet want 
what you are describing because we are desperately longing for our sons and our husbands and our dads to become the new man that you are describing. Um, I'm going to continue my conversation with Thomas Russo Jr. in just a moment. You can check it out at nopoliticsinheaven.com. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Thomas Russo Jr. He's the author of There Are No Politics in Heaven. You can check it out at nopoliticsinheaven.com. For those of you who are listening and you are saying, I want to actually talk to him, like I want that guy to be uh, my friend. Um, If you scroll down on the website, there is actually a way to engage um, with him. You can also engage with him on LinkedIn, uh, Thomas Russo Jr. Um, Tom, let's talk about your wife and kids, not necessarily just your wife and kids, but let's talk with wives and kids. Um, There there are women. I I have this conversation at least once a week, um, often more times than that, with women who are Christians their husbands may be, um, you know, going through the routines of the faith. They may be uh, going to church with them, um, but they are not in the Word. They are not in fellowship with other Christians. They are not, in your words, acting like Christian men, accountable, consistent, and transparent. Um, and they are longing in their heart of hearts for their husband to want what you now are living. So talk with them. Yeah, it's it's a very common thing that I hear as I go through my journey and I talk to people about my book. And what I can tell them is that you need to be incremental and make baby steps when you're dealing with a man who you know thinks you – know, I'm going to stereotype, but I think this is pretty accurate. Most men think they have all the answers. Most men think they need to be in charge. And the problem is that they never really have been given the blueprint um, of faith. And what I mean by that is – we tend to repeat mistakes in our adulthood that either we experienced in childhood or things that maybe our parents did, certain behaviors, attitudes, beliefs, the words that they used, etc. So, you know, what we were exposed to as children usually manifests right later on in life. And so you need to take a step back as the woman in the, in the life and say, you know, there are probably reasons why the husband – the son behaves a certain way. They, they didn't just, we, we're born whole, right? We're born perfect in God's image. And what happens is we become broken over time as the world beats us down. It could be a parent, it could be a relative, it could be the media, it could be, a, you know, a friend or whoever. So we have to unwrap that brokenness and it takes time and effort. But I'm, I'm here to tell you, when I walked in and I did a um, an intensive years ago, a, a religious intensive, it's an organization called Pause Ministry, and I asked people to check them out because they're phenomenal. And it, you basically unpacked your world from the womb going forward. So what I learned is that it wasn't necessarily politics that was the issue, but politics was kind of the manifestation of my brokenness, whereby I needed to find my self-esteem through the approval of, approval of others. And why was that? It was because when I was a child, I was overweight, and I was bullied, and I was made fun of. And it wasn't until between sophomore and junior year of high school that I starved myself and lost 100 pounds that everybody was then nice to me. And it was a very painful lesson to learn that if you give people what they want on the outside, they really didn't care about the inside. So I wouldn't have unpacked that if I didn't take time through counseling or an intensive to learn 
why I was the way I was. And then I realized I didn't need politics to have self-esteem, that I'm whole, God loves me, and God made me perfect in his image. So as long as I have faith in him and I walk with Jesus, I don't need a title. I don't need adulation. I don't need my name on a palm card or a mailer. So when women are dealing with men in their life, they have to they have to be gentle and understand that there's probably something going on in their childhood or something that went on early on in their lives that makes them the way they are today. You might need to check out a different church. You might need to, you know, walk with your your man in terms of counseling or therapy through, you know, Christian principles. You might need to start by reading the Bible together and finding scripture that you gravitate towards. You know, I gravitate towards the Psalm uh, 118.24, and this is something I tell people too. Every day is a blessing, right? Tomorrow's not guaranteed. So when I start my day with Psalm 118.24, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It starts my day with an attitude of gratitude. And we have to learn as Christians that we have to be grateful for the simple things in life. Because if you can't handle the things that God has given you today, then you can't have a greater expectation for tomorrow. You have to be respectful of what the Lord has given to you. And that doesn't just mean finances or a beautiful spouse or a big house. Sometimes it means the tribulations, too. It's the trials that you go through. But those trials and tribulations, Carmen, make you a better man, make you a better woman in faith. And one other thing I want to mention that, you know, we talk about that husbands and wives, they might be experiencing depression or anxiety. I talk about in my book that there was a study done that I referenced where you're 50% less likely to suffer from anxiety, depression, and thoughts of suicide if you walk in faith. And I, I say in my book, you know, if, if you bottled that up, right, people would be standing around the corner at the pharmacy to take that magic pill. But that magic pill already exists. It's called Jesus, and it's the Bible. And it's faith and it's scripture. So I just ask women to be patient with their men. I ask them to use resources like my book, um, obviously the Bible, and there's a lot of great books out there to talk about how to walk with Jesus. And just be incremental and be patient because it's it's a journey, um, and it's really a marathon. It's not a sprint, but I'm here to tell you that it's really well worth it for not just – um, the man involved, but for you know his spouse and his children, but not just that, old Carmen. It's also for the community at large, because as men, you know, we're asked to be leaders and we're asked to take on great responsibility. So we owe it to our wives and our kids and our communities to be the best version of man that we can be. All right, Tom, I'm going to let you answer a listener question that's come in over the text line, and you and I only have like 30 seconds to do this. So explain the title of the book, No Politics in Heaven. Great question. Well, that title was written as much for me as it was for the audience. Um, That's me telling myself that politics used to be the most important thing in my life, and in the end, there there are no politics in heaven. So that title is meant for me to say, you know what, Tom, there's other things more important in life like faith and God and Jesus. And I tell people when I talk about the book, politics was my drug of choice. Politics was my high. There was never enough politics. There was never enough in my title, the adulation, the uh, the affection, um, people voting for me, people donating to me, people putting my name on a lawn sign on their lawn or a bumper sticker on their car. Politics was the thing I turned to, and I say this, and I'll end with this. I used to have myself on the throne until God kicked me off, mm. and that was a painful thing to experience, but boy, was it necessary because the thing of my life 
I'm better, better, I'm better at my job. I have a better relationship. I'm better with my finances. I teach at two universities now instead of you know doing politics. I'm I'm an educator now as a professor. So God opened unbelievable doors for me, including the book itself that I had no idea of four years ago when I was on my hands and knees in my office. Um, so I'm here to tell you that life life can be much better. You have to walk with Jesus. Get yourself off the throne and recognize whether it's politics or pornography or alcohol or drugs or other things. Anything you put above God is something that you need to deal with, and I'm here to tell you, you can. You have the strength. You have the courage. God has instilled those things in you, and there's a better life ahead through faith and through a belief in Jesus Christ. I am so glad that we connected with each other on LinkedIn, and I'm so glad that you uh, shared the book with me and are sharing it with our audience uh, the book is There Are No Politics in Heaven, the website, nopoliticsinheaven.com. The author, Thomas Russo, Jr., thank you so much, my brother. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. Absolutely. All right, friends, we'll be right back. Okay, so I don't know about you, but I, um, I'm, I'm a little disturbed by the times when we talk about, like, medical advancement, we talk about... Uh, medical treatments. We talk about the things that could be implanted in our bodies if we um, would agree to that. And then we have not done a lot of faithful thinking and consideration about whether or not um, utilizing that technology, just because it's available, is it right? I'm wondering, are those conversations being had at your local church? Is your local church having those conversations? Like, there, there are opportunities to talk about medical ethics um, because people are making decisions in doctor's offices and um, they're, you know, they're getting a diagnosis and they're being offered uh, various treatment options. And oftentimes they are having those conversations um, and making those decisions without the counsel of, of other Christians. So anyway, I just, um, I mean, as I was listening to John Stone Street, I mean, that's what I was thinking. Like, are we as Christians engaged in the conversation about medical ethics, not just when a headline breaks about something horrible happening somewhere else around the world, but are we having these conversations with one another and actually saying, you know, what is the righteous thing? What is the right thing? Not just what can, what is the possible thing? Because there's lots of things that are possible that, you know, well, frankly, they're not righteous. Okay, next up, David Aikman will be back. He's the editor of Godspeed magazine. Um, We are absolutely going to talk about the election in the U.K., but we're also going to talk about uh, at least China. All right, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. When a law-abiding, timid electronics buff blasted four would-be muggers in a New York subway, Bernhard Goetz became an instant hero. This is Max Lakato. It's not hard to see why. He clobbered evil over the head. He embodied a nationwide anger, a passion for revenge. Yet reality makes us ask the questions, what good was done? Are the streets now free of fear? On the cross, Jesus said they do not know what they are doing. It doesn't justify kitty porn peddlers or heroin dealers. It does help explain why they do the miserable things they do. You see, once we see ourselves for what we are, we can help, not out of anger, but out of concern and compassion. We go to the ghettos, we teach in the schools, we build hospitals and help orphans. And we look at the world, not with bitter frowns, but with extended hands. This is Max Lickin. 
My name is Bond, James Bond. Back with us today is Dr. David Aikman, editor of Godspeed Magazine. Uh, welcome back, sir. Thank you, Carmen. Very nice to be with you again. Well, exciting things afoot in uh, in Great Britain. Uh, why don't you? We'll we'll let you tell people what happened. Although I suspect most listeners um, at, are at least aware of uh, of the headline, but I'm going to let you uh, tell them the story. Well, the remarkable thing is that Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister who was head of the Conservative Party only for a, about a year, took a big risk by opting for an early election because he wanted enough votes in Parliament to, to move the Brexit the Brexit divorce bill through so that the UK could get out of the EU. And what he did was he campaigned very successfully in the north of England, in the working class districts that had never ever voted for a for a Conservative Party member of Parliament. And he swung many of them into the conservative camp. In fact, he effectively demolished what was called the Red Wall of working class labor districts in the north of England. And to his credit, once he won the election that it was officially announced, he expressed humility to the people who voted for him, whose parents had always told them never to vote conservative. And he said he was humbled by their confidence in him, and he would work 24-7 to uh, fulfill what they hoped he would achieve. So it was a very unusual election in England. It's like the biggest conservative victory since 1987 with Margaret Thatcher. Right, which I, you know, which I have to say, you know, that harkens back to uh, my college years, and so um, I, I like distinctly remember that because I don't know. Maybe when when we're in college and when we're young adults, there are times when we're, that we're paying more attention to what's happening than other times. That's um, right. And That's right. I mean, I just, I mean, I, I suppose it's okay for me to just say out loud. I mean, I just love her. Like, I if Margaret Thatcher, you know, like could be around again, like I just love her. Well, yes, yeah, she's a remarkable person. She was a remarkable person. And, uh, of course, in some ways, she's also divisive because there are many people in England who really don't like her, especially in those traditional Labour Party constituencies, where they remember that she was responsible for breaking up the miners' strike and Mm. for moving the UK into a much more capitalist direction than it had hitherto been proceeding in. So, David, when we um, when we look at uh, this cycle, um, not not only um, uh, in the UK, I mean, for you guys, this is going to be Brexit now on a fast track. Is that right? I, I think it is. I mean, Johnson says he wants to get Brexit through Parliament by the end of before the end of January, which is remarkable. What that means is it's the divorce bill. He still has a year with the EU to negotiate a free trade agreement to see what kind of terms Britain can still trade under with the European Union. But getting Brexit over the threshold in a parliamentary style 
is the most important step of all because it clearly will allow Britain to sign trade agreements with anybody and everybody in the world, including, of course, the United States. So, David, you and I um, probably need to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about China. Um, It looks like we have a deal. Uh, We at least have the structure of a deal. I want to talk uh, with you about how much we should trust China, in your experience, um, if they say we have a deal. So I'm going to continue this conversation in just a moment with David Aikman, editor of Godspeed magazine. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Dr. David Aikman, editor of Godspeed magazine. David, let's talk about China. Um, I mean, our conversations about China recently have, you know, all been um, about the horrors of what they are doing to uh, the Uyghur people and others um, in their Western uh, provinces. But this is going to be a conversation today about a proposed uh, China-U.S. or U.S.-China trade deal um, tell us what you think uh, this phase one trade deal might mean and really whether or not we should trust China when we talk about these kinds of promises. Well, Robert Lighthouse, the White House U.S. trade representative, says that the deal has been totally done, whatever that means. But I think the question is, are there sufficient conditions in the deal so that if China completely on any aspect of intellectual property rights and so on, uh, an American company could get redress. So it remains to be seen whether the Chinese will fully implement it as they're supposed to do according to the agreement. And I would say on the basis of past experience of China's actions, they're not really trustworthy in very important events. So there's times that we watch the markets respond to something, the financial markets and the and the futures markets, and we say to ourselves, well, obviously, there's a lot of confidence um, related to this. This is a good sign to, you know, to people operating in that world. Um, I am aware of a lot of folks in the, you know, in the agriculture, not just uh, food products, but other ag-related products and industries who are really hopeful that um, you know that the that the market in China is going to be open again to U.S. commodities and um, and a good back and forth in terms of uh, of ag related products, um, but that sort of that sort of raises then the ethical question for Christians, right? Like we we know what's going on in the western part of China. We know what they are doing to the Uyghur people. We know what they are doing in terms of a crackdown, not just on Christian churches, but on uh, but on Buddhist congregations and uh, and certainly on Muslims as well. Um, when we when we're making an ethical decision as a Christian, there's something that's good for my economic bottom line, but there's an unrighteousness in the one with whom I'm dealing. I mean, that's complicated. It is complicated, and I think it's the kind of issue that American and other companies had to face negotiating with Nazi Germany before World War II, because most of those people who were doing trade with Hitler's regime knew exactly what he was up to, what his plans were. And yet they sort of shrugged their shoulders when people brought up ethical issues. 
And they said, well, business is business, ethics and morality is a different question, and so on. I think sooner or later, the real ethical problems of having any dealings uh, of a cooperative nature with the Chinese government are going to surface in a big way. And I think at that point, then they may just close down all connections. Certainly, we want to be um, praying for Christians in China, and we want to be praying for ministries that extend their influence into China. Um, these are really particularly challenging days for um, for evangelical Christians around the world. Um, let's talk about this Armenian genocide bill. For, for people who do not remember what was the Armenian genocide to which we are referring, and why does the use of the word genocide in this particular bill matter so much? Well, the Armenian genocide was the deliberate massacring of hundreds of thousands, maybe as many as two million Armenians, in a stage of the war between the Allied powers, that meant Britain and France against Turkey, which was then the Ottoman Empire during World War One, and the and the Russians, of course, they they were on the British and the French side, and the the Turkish government claimed that the Armenians had surrendered important positions of Turkey to the Russian government, the Tsarist government of Russia, and so in effect. The Armenians were traitors. But in point of fact, the prejudice against the Armenians from the Turkish government had been very intense for a couple of decades before World War One. Now, the problem with the word genocide is the, Arme- the, the Turkish government grudgingly admits that too many Armenians were killed in the course of World War One while they were being displaced from their homeland inside the Ottoman Empire. Uh, But they deny that this was a deliberate act of extermination of an ethnic minority. But in fact, there were several eyewitness diplomats from different countries, including the United States, who had no doubt at all that the decision to kill large numbers of of Armenians came directly from the Turkish government at the time. But the Turks won't admit that. In fact, if you are a Turkish writer and you suggest in print in Turkey that the Armenians were wiped out because of genocidal intentions by the Turkish government, you can actually go to prison because it's considered a, a basically an insult to the state of Turkey which is illegal under Turkish law. So it's a very important development that that the United States officially argues that the Armenian deaths in World War One were actually a genocidal act. It's going to annoy the Turks like crazy, but I think it's an important event. So I'm going to read a couple of, um, of paragraphs related to this so that people feel like they're Uh, You know, they're well-informed about what we're talking about. Um, The U.S. Senate voted unanimously to recognize the genocide of Armenians by the Ottoman Empire 
um, and they have recognized uh, the mass killing of an estimated 1.5 million ethnic Armenian people between 1915 and 1922 as an act of intentional genocide. Um, this comes after a similar measure that was adopted in October by the U.S. House of Representatives, and it marks the culmination of um, some 50 years of advocacy related to this. Uh, and um, and so I guess it just now wait, awaits the president's um, signature. That's right. And, and the 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 leverage that Turkey has been using for well now nearly a hundred years is is that they are a NATO ally, right? I guess they've only been using that since NATO has been in, in existence. But um, they have been using their leverage as a NATO as a NATO ally to right. to keep the U.S. and others from coming right out and saying and recognizing the Armenian genocide. Um, I view this as a as a critical moment in terms of Turkey's ongoing participation in NATO. They've they've been a really naughty NATO member for a long time. Right, they have by particularly buying these Russian S four hundred anti aircraft missiles, which are fatal to many NATO countries' air forces if used. So they are not behaving very well at this stage. So I think that you and I will continue to watch um, Turkey's mm, Turkey's questionable participation uh, in NATO. I think that's going to be a, uh, a thread we are going to be watching in the year to come. David, uh, thank you so much for joining us again today. We love talking with you. Appreciate your insight and your wisdom. Um, and thank you so much for having me on. And you have a wonderful week. Thank you. You too. We'll speak again soon. All right, we're going to take one more break, and then we'll be right back. All righty. I have tons of little notes here at the end of the hour, things that um, I thought, you know, I might still have an opportunity to talk about. I wonder what is on your list of things, your wish list for Christmas. Um, and what is on your list in terms of the new year? We don't really have, I mean, you know, like we're on, it's the 16th day of December. So we really only have a couple of weeks left in, in 2019. Next year is 2020. How are you bringing that into focus? What kind of review are you doing of 2019? What kind of return on investment, um, you know, will God see at this year end in terms of fruitfulness, um, in terms of that which you are passing along to him or returning for his use that he could multiply um, to his own glory? Those are some of the little notes that I have in terms of conversations that I'd love to be having with you over the next couple of weeks. So, so let's just consider today um, what's left of this year, and then how we are going to bring 2020 into focus. I'd love to hear from you the kinds of things you um, would like for us to talk more about in the new year. You can always text me at 877-933-2484. You can email me uh, at Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. Um, you know, like what what do you like that we talk about? What do you wish we talked about more? Where would you like us to go deeper? Um, and, and, you know, in the alternative, um, maybe there are things you wish we did not talk as much about. And if so, you have to you have to make the argument as to why. Um, Paul and I are open to bringing 2020 into focus and hearing from you as a part of that. So let us know. You can email me, Carmen, at MyFaithRadio.com. We've got a great week ahead of us. I hope you'll be with us again tomorrow on Mornings with Carmen. Have a great day and God bless.
Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.